So I want to welcome everyone. This is nice to see you all. <clears throat> this is the first of a long series. I originally thought it would be, since it's on the Paramis and there are 10 of them, I thought, well, that's 20 classes. But since I look over the, what the content, the richness of the content, I think, why rush this thing? I mean, where are we rushing to get to what, right? To get to another series. <laughs> so instead of doing that, I thought, well, it would be fun just to take our time with this. And I, so I don't know how many talks there'll be, but I'm going to give at least two on generosity and a number on morality. And just we're just going to just walk this thing forward at our own pace, which means that the Sims calendar is wrong, <laughs> unfortunately. But it will be talk, discussion, talk, discussion as we do in any series. But it could well fill most of the year. And I, I, I like uh, the fact that, um, that we have, uh, not to get too political, but leadership now that uh, inspires a cultural shift into these paramis. Uh, it's very hard to fight a cultural induction of dishonesty and distortion and uh, uh, superficiality, really. And uh, my own sense of this new administration, and I don't want to put too much, invest too much in it, idealistically, but that there's a kind of way that it pulls an integritist part of me out as well. I hope it does for you. And I hope that this administration maintains that sense of, of, um, of what I perceive as a kind of incorruptibility. And because when we have a cultural context for talking about these paramis, the deepest and most meaningful aspects of ourselves, it is supported, when it's supported culturally. I mean, I just, I don't think we realize how difficult it is to do it cloistered, uh, cut off from uh, not having any models or uh, even uh, any sense of sort of being adrift in the culture. Um, but I, there's a kind of way uh, early on in this administration that, that is pulling something out of us something and those that's what that which it is being pulled out of us are the paramis and so uh, I love the fact that we can now talk about these things and really feel a cultural context in which they are de- can be de- um, perceived uh, and so what is what is a parami what what is that? It literally means uh, going towards. And if I can just give you the mythological reference, I don't claim this to be true at all. How would anyone know? But anyway, the Buddha before the Buddha, the, the Buddha before this Buddha, was a, uh, his name was Deepankara Buddha. And it said that there was a young recluse named Sumedho who... Uh, upon seeing Deepankara Buddha in his time uh, yearned to reach that perfection of Buddhahood in himself 
And that young Sumedho eventually, over eons and eons of time, became the Buddha that we know, Buddha Siddhartha Gautama. Uh, but it started uh, from uh, really feeling um, the inclination to move in a direction so inspired that this young uh, recluse uh, yearned for uh, that perfection in himself. And so it's said that once he developed that uh, intention, he went back into his little hut and he thought, okay, so what qualities does a Buddha manifest that I can replicate in myself? And so he listed ten, and those have, it said, become the ten paramis. Now that's a mythological reference, but uh, in fact, in the scriptures, the scriptures that we know, uh, there isn't any real reference to paramis. There's a lot of reference to the individual qualities that are together and collectively perceived as the paramis, but in, as a collective representation, I can't find any reference to that in the Buddhist scriptures. It really, I think, came about after the Buddhist time when people started thinking in terms of the bodhisattva vow, that is the vow of, of, of investing in one's life and incorruptibility and sustained incorruptibility even towards a perfection of character uh, and wisdom. So uh, if that symbolism uh, works for you, fine the bodhisattva vow and that sort of thing. But it's not really where I'm going to encourage us. I'm going to encourage us uh, along the lines of looking at these qualities as intrinsic to ourselves but blocked often by uh, intones of selfishness and contraction and different ways, different states of mind that isolate us from the beauty of what we already are. And that these qualities don't so much need to be nourished and cultivated as they do to be opened to, to be, um, to be uh, um, accessed. And uh, I like that better because it takes the burden of you having to find it off. You still have to, you still have a lot of recovering. We each have a lot of recovering to do because we have to recover these qualities. In ourselves, but you'll get a sense that they're in, in, uh, in us. Now, we're going to talk about generosity now. Is there anyone that hasn't ever experienced generosity? What did you have to spend your life developing that quality so that you had one moment of it? Or were there certain things that were intrinsic in that moment in which generosity sprang forth? And what were those things that were present when we were um, unabridged in our generosity? when we were completely spontaneous in our generosity. And if we look, those qualities quite likely were an openness, an openness, an ease with life in that moment, a relaxation, and a sense of connectedness. And from those ingredients, you might say, which is really the ingredients of how we invest uh, in meditation, uh, there, if the opportunity came for love to take 
the orientation of generosity, it does so. Here, have this. Take this. And then we can uh, contract back around ourselves very quickly and thought, why did I give that away? You know, what are I, I had an example of that when I was a monk. I had a beautiful bone Buddha. It was a Buddha carved from bone. So I thought, wow, you know, I'm never going to get rid of this thing. I really wanted it. I loved it because it represented death and dying and all that. Plus, it was very nicely carved. And so I kept it in my little hut. And then uh, a friend of mine who was passing through and had done a lot for me, um, I just wanted to do something for, for him. And uh, the only thing that sprang to mind was to give him this little bone Buddha I had. So in a minute moment of inspiration, I got my little bone Buddha and I said, you take it. I, wa- I want you to have it. And he said, oh, I could never accept that. It's a... And I said, no, 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 I want you to take it. And so he said, well, thank you. And as soon as he said thank you, I went, oh, my God. <laughs> I just gave away my bone Buddha. <laughs> so I thought, oh, I don't know, you know. So I, um, I thought, oh, well, I'm really going to miss it. But I still wanted him to have it, so I didn't uh, ask for it back. <laughs> and uh, he went off to another monastery. And uh, the next day, I didn't miss it. It was amazing that it meant so much to me as long as it was in my presence, you know, and I relished it. But as soon as I'd given it away, it, I didn't miss it. it. wasn't even, I went, and the joy I had in giving uh, this dear uh, monk, my friend, this Buddha, uh, really filled the hole of whatever lacking there was from not having it. It was a, it was a moment in which I really understood uh, the sense of where generosity comes from. And that we often have to fight the impulse, you know, to retain, because our culture is a retaining culture. It's, it's an interesting mix, our culture, because it also has a very nice heart of generosity. But it's mixed with a very strong induction of of um, having and obtaining and possessing. And I don't quite understand how those two work together within the same induction of culture, but somehow, uh, so I don't feel that we are a selfish culture. I feel we're a very possessive culture, one that really holds on and retains and tries to build up uh, uh, one's own material wealth often at the expense of others, but that we're also willing uh, to open our hearts and to be very generous in times of need. So it's not as if our entire culture is wrongly postured. It's just that we have to find our way through uh, how we've been trained in terms of accumulated wealth, in terms of having as being sort of the... uh, summation of what life is about how much we have or how much we earn or who we are is another accumulation of wealth on a different status point and I and, and, and because in all of those things when after we do give comes the cultural imperative of having just lost something that I had so this this 
overtone of culture comes back in on it and we go, oh, God, I regret giving it. And, and so we don't, often we don't feel the place from where generosity arises. It's a very wonderful place. But don't think you know so much about it. Because it needs your inquisition. It needs your investigation. Like, what is this thing called generosity? What is this? What is this? It, it has a kind of access to connection and, and a flow and a movement to it, doesn't it? And interesting, I was just, as I was just sitting in meditation prior to this talk, an interesting parallel happened to me, and just see if you can follow it with me, is that the more I was receptive, the more open I was, the more receptive I was to what was arising within me, the more generous I was to what was in me. The more I would let it be, the more I could acknowledge it for whatever it was. And the more connected I felt to it, and the, and the more appreciative I also felt of having it. So, generosity is directly proportional to our ability to receive. So, giving and receiving are, are absolutely uh, related. It's very, very interesting because we can see it in the stance we take in meditation. The willingness to, to make space for for lack of a better terminology, whatever arises, being completely generous, not trapping it, and trapping it in our resistance or with our resistance or with our aversion, but just making space for it, giving it space. And what does that require of me? Nothing but to back away from it. To not to have an opinion about it, but to have less of it, to have wonder and mystery. Because the more we back away from something, the less we know about it. When we are very sure of ourselves, of what this thing is, we have a lot of opinions about something, don't we? And we're not really being receptive to it. We already know about it and are contained and fixated it within that knowing. But as we back away, as we grant it more space, as we be, it becomes more mysterious to us. And that mysterious holds directly proportional to our ability to be generous with it. Now, what also happens, which is very interesting, is I become less involved in it. There is less of me in the thing, trying to do something with the thing, trying to manipulate it to my advantage. As I give it more space, there's less involvement or contraction around it from me. So there's less me. So I'm going to draw a different parallel now. The less me there is, the more generosity is available. Now prove that to yourself. Do not, do not just say, oh, that sounds great. I'll go out and tell my friends. <laughs> prove it to yourself. Prove it to yourself. Now what is he talking about? Receptivity and generosity and, and re releasing the sense of I. The releasing the sense of me. Because what the t me, the sense of me, 
is filled with this tension. Tension around something, resistance to something. Not letting it be what it is, but trying to manipulate it in some way towards our advantage, which is a selfish kind of relationship to it. So when you look at when the me is predominant, the sense of me is predominant in my internal life, there's a lot of selfishness, but very little generosity. And when I'm more relaxed and opened and less of a me involved, there's plenty of space for generosity because I'm not being selfishly uh, persuaded by. Now, <clears throat> that's interesting on a number of fronts because it opens up the whole question of whether we can make this a self a self-responsible task of ours to be generous. I'm going to be generous. I'm going to be responsible. I'm going to be generous. And you see what happens when you do that, when you start seeing in your meditation how that clamping down, that definition and then clamping down around something really obscures the very thing itself that we're trying to access. And that this thing called generosity doesn't require your efforts it requires your understanding. It requires your permission. It requires letting life be and having faith in that a response to life, when we allow it to be as it is, is a generous response. We want to make it our own project. You see, that's the problem when I start talking about the ten paramis. Is like, man, I can really get into that. I can watch myself become more generous and check off and grade myself and say, well, he's not generous, but I'm generous. I'm doing the right thing. I'm really being a good Buddhist. And you can just, you can be an annoying Buddhist that way. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not going to be very good. Not in the sense of being correctly aligned with what we're talking about here. And so... You know, we always want to, we mostly want to make a project out of it. We want to be productive and useful and make this our ownership, to have the ownership of I saying, yeah, I'm after generosity now. You know, this is real. And so then build upon our own self-image, but now we're becoming more generous in our, in our self-image. So you can't claim ownership to this, so, or any of the paramis. But that doesn't mean there's nothing to do. We have to look and see what this generosity means, how it comes forth and how we hide and obscure it, how we can let it out, how we can unleash it. And let us unleash it. Let us find the access. Open the doors and windows and let the wind blow on this one. Hmm? And so... How does that work? Well, we have to investigate. We have to say, okay, well, now I'm not generous. I'm feeling very selfish. I'm feeling very... Okay, we're not denying that. We're going to be generous to that aspect of ourselves. Because if we're going to find generosity, we have to use it as the ways and means of finding it. We can't use selfishness to discover generosity. We have to be and base ourselves in generosity and respond to everything generously in order to discover what generosity is. Does that make sense? So then, we're selfish. We're feeling selfish. Okay, well, there's nothing wrong with that. We all have those moments of contraction, and, and those are not moments in which 
I've lost anything. Those are moments of great advantage to us if we know how to use them towards an understanding of what generosity is. And so we just invite a generous moment in selfishness. You know, I'm not going to give anything away. I don't care. Don't you tell me to go. I'm not, I don't care. I'm not. Just be quiet with yourself a little bit. Give yourself some space here. And just, just okay, what is that? What is that need to self-protect? To I'm At this moment, I'm feeling very scared, quite likely, or very vulnerable. And what I'm doing is building ramparts, walls for myself. And one of those walls is my possessiveness of things. Fair enough. Okay, I'm looking at that. I'm looking at that and how the mind, when it does have fear, coalesces around itself. And there's no openness. There's no wind. The, the, the doors are shut closed. It's tight in there. So we don't begrudge that. We just bring a very generous spirit to that moment of selfishness. And you're like, oh, okay. And here, you see, you begin to see how the paramis relate to one another. They're holograms of the same intent. Because when we are generous in terms of offering something space, isn't that also called patience? And now we're on a different part of me. And isn't that also called love? And now we're on a different part of me. And we can just march the paramis through the particular interpretation of this openness, this openness, the perspective of openness that we're currently taking. But that it all requires the same availability of spirit. We're not getting more exclusive here. We're getting more inclusive. Each of the paramis is a call towards inclusivity. Always inclusivity. If we're going any other way than this, we're going in the wrong direction. It's a swan dive into life. It's beautiful to begin to see that. And so how do we, what do we do? Okay, so we're trying to find our way into all of this. And what's the first thing we do when we don't want to make it a task for ourselves to be generous and then to calculate the measurement of how close we're getting to being generous? That's all the mind's derivation of generosity. And when you give your derivation of generosity or any parami over to the mind, you can bet there's going to be a backlash of evaluation and comparison. And your generosity is going to be forced generosity. It's like forced Christmas shopping. I know I'm supposed to do it. I don't feel like doing it. I don't even like him. <laughs> So you can beware that the backlash is that you're making a task out of this thing rather than inviting an exploration of it. So what I can do, though, is incline my mind towards it. I want to know what generosity... I want to know that. I mean, doesn't it welcome a kind of inclination? What is this thing? I'd like to know because it's very... um, it has a lot to say about how to live this generosity. 
So what can it teach me? What, let me bring it on. Okay, I'm going to climb my mind towards this. Which means I have to see when it's not, and I have to see when it is. And I have to see what's present when it's not, and I have to see what's present when it is. And I'm getting something from the state of it not being present. There's something that I need in that closing down and constricted space. And there is something that I'm be, way I'm being fed when it is open. And so I have to look at those things. I can't pass this by. And so now I'm going to transgress, digress, whatever the word is, for a moment. Because I think the area that we are probably less um, prone to is to look at our emotional uh, our emotional life with the same kind of purposeful intent that we give, you know, watching thought or seeing things change or some of the more abstract Buddhist terms. But we're a little bit weary of actually watching our emotional life and what it involves. And when you take on something like generosity, you're going to have a lot of emotions that come up in terms of fear, as I mentioned, or in terms of anger or in terms of sense of failure or the sense of shame that you're not generous enough or guilt. There's going to be a whole <coughs> array of both positive and negative emotions that accompany a journey of investigation into any of these paramis. And if we're not keen on knowing ourselves emotionally and broadening our emotional intelligence about ourselves, which I think is a weakness for many people, they like to go to the abstract quality of Buddhism, you know, and say, well, it's just thought, you know, and, or it's going to change. It's just a Nietzsche, and it's all going to change. Rather than to actually look at the personal quality of how we're relating to this experience. That's called self-awareness. That's called self-awareness. And so this... Self-awareness accompanies our journey, and we begin to grow and learn about all the reasons emotionally and psychologically that we stop ourselves from being generous, because there are psychological reasons that we do so. And for us to try to take the noble road and get over ourselves is to bypass that self-awareness, as if you could do so. And not to see what basis your selfishness is what your selfishness is based upon. But the selfishness doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from a certain alignment, a certain way that we perceive life and our needs within life, and our fears of life, and our sense of disadvantagement in life. And so we have to accompany this journey of understanding generosity with emotional intelligence that will be surrounding it as we move deeply into this understanding. It's a beautiful journey. So the first thing is to incline our mind towards it. And the second is to say, I don't care what I see, the ways and means I'm going to work with this thing is by being generous to it, allowing space for it, just seeing it for what it is, 
without any demands, which is not, when you demand, that's not being generous, right? Generosity isn't a quid pro quo. I'll show you, but you've got to. It's an open stance. It's this. Here, take the bone Buddha and I expect nothing in return. And then the mind kicks back. You go, whoa. You see where we're going? You feel the community, the communion within the community that generosity and the exploration of generosity offers. You see, all of this is based on wise view. It has to be, and wise view has to surround it. We have to want to know interconnectedness. We have to know that interconnectedness is at the heart of what we're doing in every step of the way in this tradition. And that what we're investigating is our disturbed and often psychological patterns that arrests what is naturally there to begin with. So that's great. I say, fine. Don't be afraid of what will be revealed because you're all, we're already carrying it with us. It's just when it's revealed, it's revealed. And now it's consciously we're carrying it with us rather than unconsciously carrying it with us. And so, meeting, first inclining the mind, <coughs> excuse me, first inclining the mind, and then offering that generosity of spirit to whatever emotional difficulty or memories or whatever. Which means I'm not going to do anything with them. I'm just going to, I'm just going to let them come into the mix of things. And maybe I need a therapeutic talking just to help me with, with some of the uh, rubs. It's fine. Use whatever is advantageous to getting through this thing so that you can continue to observe and to let be what is being observed and to invest in a kind of interest in wonder all along the way because the interest in wonder shows that it's coming from our heart that we are available to it in an innocence in a inquisition in a inquiry in an investigative sense. What is this thing, generosity? And it's not going to be a task that we're going to make in which we're going to thump our way through step by step, like through six-inch mud, making ourselves generous. So never think, let us never think that we know what generosity is. I, uh, when I was approaching death, if I lost my innocence, I lost everything. As soon as I knew how somebody was going to die or that I knew what death was, I was of no help to that person or myself. So here's the next step. You see, this is very interesting. <laughs> Service work, are how we interface, if we truly want to offer somebody the, and coincidentally learn the greatest amount for ourselves is that we give a kind of if there's a kind of generosity of spirit in which we meet that person 
We aren't trying to do something for them. We don't meet that person with an expectation of how we're going to help them. That's not generosity. Generosity is creating the space for a dialogue to ensue to see how each person can be helped in that dialogue in session. When I was with the dying, they often helped me more than I ever felt I helped them. And I was led to the dying through the desire and the mystery of knowing what death was. And so they were feeding me that knowledge through our connectedness. And through that connectedness, I was allowing them the generosity, which was coming spontaneously from me wanting to understand them. I was offering them, not from my desire to be generous to them, but from my desire to learn from them. I was accessing an environment for them in which they could grow in the way they most wanted, not the way I wanted them to. Below my radar, you see how this thing marches itself out unseen? I'm not trying to... This isn't an influence. You see, I'm not trying to influence anyone. In fact, I'm surrendering my need to do that so that there can be a genuine meeting taking place in which each person can then move in accordance with that connection in the way that they most are most served. So to think that you're doing something wrong if your job is feeding you is completely false. It should be feeding you. Because remember, when we're receptive, which means we're, receive, we're learning, we're being fed, that's the optimum environment for generosity to manifest. So the more I'm receiving, the more generosity is available. And of course, the less me, who knows what the person needs, is also in abeyance. Now, also what happens when we take on these paramis is that our character starts changing. And I look at Sangha as an oven, a slow baking oven. And we come in and we incline our minds towards each of these paramis in the course of many weeks together we start getting baked in the direction of that inclination. It's a slow roast. <laughs> right? But the heat of the oven, some people, some of us can't stand the heat, which is okay. This isn't the right place for you if you can't stand the heat. You go, go to wherever you feel comfortable with the heat. But the heat of the oven is really that nearer reflection of us back and the willingness to stand steady within that mirrored reflection of what we're doing all the time and that self-awareness and being able to hold and embrace that and learn from it and to march it forward. And that's the temperature of the oven because sometimes it gets very hot. But the beauty is, is that we've all crowded into this oven together. 
And we're using this, helping each other and reminding each other why it is that we would even want to know what generosity was. When our culture doesn't necessarily see it as advantageous. It's nice to be generous, but first be wealthy. And generosity in our culture is often giving out of mood. If I feel good, I'll be generous. If I don't feel good, you're not getting a thing. Don't come knocking at my door. Right? So it's conditional. We know conditional generosity. So this sense of character development is a very slow process. Don't try to observe it. Just let, know that it's happening. Don't make it a point or a goal for what's happening. Just let it happen. Throw yourself in the oven. Everybody that's in the oven gets baked. You don't have to worry. Baking happens by just inclining your mind towards these subjects. If you don't want to be baked, well, but most of us do. And so don't make your character formation central to your exploration. That will take care of itself. Let your wisdom be central to the reason we're here. And first, thing the wisdom wants to know is, why should I be generous anyway? I mean, you look at really hard questions. You don't, you don't get guilty when you have a question like, I don't know about generosity. Maybe it's just for fools. I'm not going to deny. Okay, that's it. I, you see, when you're just when you're just going to shake it all down, you know, you're just going to you go you just go right to the to the floor, to the dirt, to the mud of this thing. So why be generous? Why doesn't selfishness work? I want to know at that level, you know, with your fingernails dirty and grimy. Why doesn't, why? Why doesn't it work? And I don't know if it doesn't. But that's where wisdom is based. Deep in the mud of our questions. So don't be afraid to ask these questions. Of me or of each other or of yourself. What's so good about this? Sounds good, but so what? I mean, yeah... It'd be great if everybody was, but everybody's not. So am I going to be the only fool out here giving things away? <laughs> see, you want to take the Dharma and drive it by your hard questions and see if it responds. Maybe it won't. And then it's dead. We could all leave here and thank God we don't have to come back Tuesdays. <laughs> That's, are we going to be that honest? Want to be that honest? I do. <coughs> so, let the wisdom component spring forth. Now, <coughs> in most Buddhist countries, they don't practice wisdom up front. They practice morality and generosity as little kids, and then they... And you're invested with a lot of generosity. The culture itself is very generous. The culture is very ethical often. And then wisdom is built upon the character of a long-established morality and and generosity-based culture. And just to give you a story, to show you 
how some of these cultures <coughs> work this. I was uh, in a monk and uh, I was over on an island practicing off by myself, but there's also a monastery there. And once a year, the coconuts get ripe enough so that <coughs> the ties come out <coughs> and make this delicious Thai sweet in which they have to, it takes like 48 hours to stir, continuously stir this coconut milk and and then they only get a little bit out of it and it lasts them for the year until the next coconut harvest. So they, they're up all night doing this thing. I could see them where I was sitting and fires burning all over and they're making this coconut. So unbeknownst to them, several busload of tourists come into this monastery. And they, so the tourists are all, that none of Sure, I'm sure that no one in the monastery knew that that was going to happen, nor knew anybody on the buses. But anyway, so several busloads of tourists come. And the Thais all lined up. And as the people were getting back in their buses, they gave them a packet of the sweet they had just made. I knew that they were giving away much more than, you know, much more than they were able to retain for themselves. They were giving away their harvest. And I thought, you know, I don't know if we would have done that as a culture. In fact, I wasn't sure I would have done that as a Buddhist. <laughs> because, because we don't realize how insidious our training is and our cultural imperatives are. And I just want to keep stressing that because other cultures have completely different ways of relating and as we're seeing now, and I think we will see to a greater extent, as the economy is driven down more and more into the uh, darkness that it seems to be falling, we're going to find the need for generosity with each other. We're going to find people welcoming other people into their homes. And it's not going to be single-family homes for a long period of time until this thing straightens itself out. And sharing, genuine sharing, because I don't know about you, but I don't want to be well fed when there are starving people around me. <clears throat> and maybe as a group we can start working this thing so that we can be in the vanguard of that sense of dissemination, of just giving out. So here's, a, here's just a, something that I would suggest. Don't let the impulse to be generous, that true impulse of heart, don't second guess it. Because what's going to second guess it is the cultural imperative to be selfish. Just do it. And what I do, I just want to keep an access to that. Because it's not always, I do a couple of things. One is, I go every morning to the hunger site on my computer. The hunger site. And every time you click on, if there's a hunger site and a breast cancer site and a save the dogs and save the animal site and a save the rainforest site and they're all right there. You click on it and each time they click a certain amount of money goes towards that project but then a whole array of advertisements come up. But you, If you're quick you can click on the next one and shut that down not even see who the, who the advertisers were. So I do that and every time I say okay may all beings be free of hunger. Click. May the rainforests of the world grow in abundance. Click. May people be free of breast cancer. Click. So I'm offering that sense of generosity. Just taking a moment. It takes all of 20 seconds. 
And here's another thing in action I do. When I see somebody selling real change, don't pass them up. Give them a dollar. That's it. Don't say, well, I already spent $26 at Trader Joe's. I don't know. <laughs> Just do it. Just do it. It's a dollar. Just, so find your own ways to foster this imperative of the heart. Imperative of the heart. It's an imperative of the heart. And let us together in quietude because it's not a it's not a self promotion. I don't get in the car and say, Alan, did you see me give the dollar to the <laughs> that doesn't work like that. <coughs> we take ourselves out of the equation. It's not it's it's the essence of generosity is humility. How privileged we are in this room. How can we not be generous? So as we move into these paramis, let us do so collectively as well as individually. Let us do it without knowing too much about it and go into it investigatively, looking at it in wonder, inclining our mind towards the richness of what this holds. And we're going to be fed, guaranteed, we're going to be fed through our interest, through this wondrous adventure deeper into the spirits of our lives. May it be so. May it be so. Can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.